0: Bye. That's weak and the back that's strong. to the in October twenty twelve. I decided to quit my job and ride a vintage motorcycle from London to Cape Town with a friend of mine. I'd been living abroad in different bits of Europe and in America for a few years and uh, I just got a little bit bored and jaded with what I was doing and felt the need to go and live by a, a sort of different set of values and life choices and an adventure, really. It was just uh, calling. I was dropping a car off for a friend of mine in a garage in West London, in Acton, and there was this bike hanging from a gantry crane in the eaves of this warehouse, and I asked the, the owner of the business what the story was, and they got it down for me, and I spent an afternoon taking it apart, and then put it back together again, and Kicked it and the first kick it started, uh, and all of the hairs on, on the back of my neck went up. And it was just a bit of a, a sort of love affair from from that moment with that bike. Got on, on the phone with Tom, and we decided that you know we were approaching 30 and that um, it was going to be some now or never. I remember Tom's father actually having to push-start both of us in Putney, um, which was a sort of entertaining way to start a a big adventure. You know, you would like to think that you could start your own bike, but he had to give us a push-start. And that was it. We we hadn't really any sort of idea how long it was going to be. I think we'd sort of allocated in our minds that the journey might be six months, It's probably about 15,000 miles from London to Cape Town. The bikes aren't very fast, they're they're very low and slow, so I don't know, they probably do about 50, 55 miles an hour comfortably with all of the touring gear that we had on. We built these racks at the back to hold a a Pannier box and a 20 litre UN jerry can um, for fuel then had a sort of roll, roll bag of our clothes and all our gear and tools and stuff and we probably had about four or five inches uh, layer at the bottom of each of the pannier boxes full of spares. Um, we'd intentionally taken the, the same bike so that we could split up the number of spares that we needed to take and that, that was really sort of the, the level of planning. Done a lot of research on a website to try and quantify how difficult some of the borders that we were going to be crossing were going to be. Syria was kicking off, so we knew that we couldn't go overland through Syria, and we learned about a boat that was going from southern Turkey to northern Egypt, um, and that was that was our route. So we went all the way down across. Western Europe and Eastern Europe, into Asia, down to southern Turkey, to the border uh, with Syria, and there's a port called Liskender in there. We sailed from to Damietta and North then from there Egypt, it was just sort of going East Africa, so um, down through Egypt. Troublesome on the roads. Um, you could be driving along your side of the motorway and just arbitrarily someone will be coming towards you on your in your lane, but in the opposite direction, um, you, know, you just drive past a dead horse in the middle of the road and there's nobody, like, there cleaning it up. It's just going to be there for two weeks and, until the dogs take it. You get down to the Aswan High Dam and you have to take a boat uh, over Lake Nasser down to Wadi Halfa in northern Sudan. Um, and so you sort of transition from the the Sahara into the really formidable and terrifying Nuba Desert um, which is not sandy like the Sahara, it's just these sort of tinder-dry sharp angular rocks which are just, it's a really scary terrain to to ride through. Tom and I had always spoken about breaking up the journey somehow, um, taking some time away from the bikes, away from each other um, and doing some work in East Africa to share our experience and to, to extend it and, um, and he'd been in touch with a hospital in Addis Ababa and he's a, a physician and he set up a meeting with them shortly after we arrived and that, that converted to a job quite quickly and I've been in renewable energy for, for years and sort of assumed that when I got there I was going to find it quite easy to, to get a job but I just try as I might. I just couldn't, and I I was looking left, right, and and centre, and setting up meetings with lots of different individuals that had been out there in that space. But nothing was quite gathering momentum at that time. Um, I actually stumbled across a couple of guys who were the the Ethiopian rock climbing society, Um, and I picked up rock climbing in, in the States when I was living out in Seattle and, uh, and so I started hanging out with them quite a lot and um, there there's one in particular Nico who had sort of encouraged the, the local community there to sort of view it as a possibility that they could develop a small business around it you know, that these strange white folk would come and want to climb their cliff and, <laughs> and that they could capitalise on that so I was doing, doing this climbing, but, but I felt sort of embarrassed, really, that I I couldn't find work um, and that nothing was really, really sticking. Um, Tom had been set up with with a house by his hospital, um, and I just sort of felt guilty that I was uh, loafing and, and hanging on and not really doing anything with my time. And then sort of fate, I guess, stepped in. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon in early April and I'd met this Belgian lawyer and was going out to see her at her home just outside of Addis and I was going down a a three lane motorway um, and approaching this small rise in a hill and there was a bus I remember parked on the slow lane on the right hand side and there were these three women at the end of the bus looking down the road trying to decide whether or not to cross um, and I was approaching, the, the roads were completely empty, it was only me on my side of the road but it was a sort of proper three lane each way highway and coming up to the, the brow of the hill um, the first girl did a, a sort of falter step and sort of step back because she saw me coming and then the third in the line of girls actually had a little um, baby swaddled around her back and she thought she could make it and she ran across and I just remember thinking absolute idiot Um, why why would you risk it and I think I I consciously closed the the throttle which is sort of the first thing you do to slow down the motorcycles and I think I was probably doing about 20-25 miles an hour and the middle of the three girls I think probably prompted by those visual Cues in her periphery, just ran across without looking, and I swerved to avoid her, but clipped her left leg, and I sort of bent the bike over onto 45 degrees to try and swerve around her, but clipping her leg, it twisted the handlebars. I fell off and skittered down the road, and I just remember the headlight glass in in the motorcycle, hitting the tarmac and just exploding, and just that sound of it going down the road, all this sort of broken glass. And very, very quickly, I was surrounded, you know, even before I got up by probably one or two hundred local guys, all implying that it was a high-speed crash and that I personally owed them money by way of some sort of bribe to, to get out, to leave me alone. I stood up and um, did a sort of quick check of, of myself, dusted myself off, and I was wearing a leather jacket and a helmet, and so I was completely fine, and um, I made my way over to where the girl was, and she had this sort of really guilty expression on, on her face that, you know, something was, was wrong, and there was quite a lot of pain in her left leg, and so I picked her up with another guy that was there and they said that there was a, a clinic over the road. So we took her straight over there and they administered painkillers and told me that her femur was broken uh, and my it was, my heart sank. It was uh, just this sort of mental imagery of hitting someone um, with a, a motorcycle and sort of feeling that, that responsibility for it and um, was was yeah a, a terrible thing to the girl to the the clinic and two gents arrived claiming they were her brothers and then a couple of policemen arrived brothers basically shoot away the police they said no we don't we don't want police this guy looks responsible and whatever else and I thought you know that's that's really decent of them. I'm good for whatever they need for me to look after this girl, and it seemed like it was sort of quite a a trust relationship that had already been established in the sort of half an hour, an hour after the accident. And we then went around a few different hospitals in, in the back of one of their cars, no ambulance or anything like that, just looking for a hospital with a bed that could take her. And I think the third or fourth hospital maybe had a spare bed and it was a orthopaedic specialty as well so it was the the best hospital that she could have gone to actually in in the whole of Addis. so to be admitted to hospital i had to pay a cash deposit and i guess it's so that the hospital knows that they're actually going to get paid for the operation rather than just someone coming in and getting the care and then doing a runner so i paid the big cash deposit for, for this girl to be admitted and at that point the mood slightly changed with the brothers and they said okay now we'd like to go and leave a, a statement with the police and I thought okay well that's a little bit blatant and um, sad that that's how it's going to be but I, I was okay with that I didn't have anything to to hide I didn't feel like it was my fault or anything and I thought that it would just be part of the process just sort of going down and leaving my statement we went to the nearest police station to where the accident happened and they weren't interested in the slightest. They just didn't have the authority. And we went to another one and then another one. And that was the sort of regional district police station uh, in a place called Bole. The sort of superintendent said, okay, well, leave some ID with us and come back in the morning. It's It's 2 a.m. It's ridiculous. Let's deal with this in the morning. So... I agree with the brothers who dropped me off at home very kindly to meet them back at the hospital the next morning to basically check that the girl was going to get into surgery that day and that then we'd go to the police station and leave my statement. So I arrived at the hospital, pay another bill and make sure that she's going to get treated that day. and there's a policeman waiting for me as well and I, my heart sank a little bit I was like well this isn't really what we agreed but you know it's it's not desperately different maybe he he just wants to go through another bit of process and he did he said okay let's go to the the scene of the accident and and you can describe to me there in person sort of how it happened I was fine with that but it was it was a bit of a, a red flag so i decided that that was probably a good point to call the consulate And sort of figure out what the official line was so i got hold of consular emergency services and discovered that that is actually an answer phone (laughs) Um, so i left one message saying one finds oneself in a spot of bother could you give me a call back um and then went to the the scene of the accident to um yeah, give my rendition of events after that the police officer said right now we've got to go to the police station and I'd left my ID there so I was fine with that I was like okay well just go and give my statement and I'll take my ID and I'll go home or back to the hospital and check on things there I arranged to meet a friend of mine called Alvin who was the other, other climber his Amharic was completely fluent and he agreed to come and translate my statement we did that, and then the police officer said, OK, there's just a few more bits of information that we need from you, you know, insurance docs and vehicle ownership docs. And I, I said, yeah, no problem. They're over at Alvin's. Um, give me half an hour, and I'll go and get them. And he said, OK, there's, there's just one problem. You, you can't leave. And I, I thought he was joking. I was like, how am I going to get the information that you want if I can't go? But then it, it sort of became a little bit more apparent that that was the process when there's a traffic accident. You're just held, essentially, indefinitely until they know that the pedestrian is okay. And they sort of sign me in quite legitimately, you know, take my my details, and I'm clearly going to be held in a cell overnight. My, my imagination was sort of running as to what that was going to look like. They asked me for Every thing that I could potentially kill myself or someone with, so belt and shoelaces and took kind of anything of any value from me, my wallet and phone, and then led me to the cell. It was a room that was probably about seven by nine meters with fifty inmates, and I'm the only white guy in there and there are 3 of these cells back to back. It says 150 local Ethiopians. And me. I remember the roof tiles were like those sort of office square tiles and it was very low ceiling. The really small windows with metal bars over them. Um, there was a yellow bucket in the corner for uh, relieving yourself overnight. And there was a toilet block at the end outside the cells if you needed a crap, and then a, a couple of guards sort of sauntering around with with AKs. I was in cell one, which was sort of petty criminals, and it, it got progressively worse down to, to cell three. I'm basically let in there, and a fight breaks out within the first five minutes of me being in there, and I was like shit, is this, is this what it's going to be like? Am I going to have to pick a fight with the biggest guy? <laughs> I don't know, like, how, how real is this going to be? At sunset, you're locked in for, for sort of 13 hours of the night and the, the temperature just soars because there's no air circulation. And at that point it becomes a... An absolute cacophony of sound as well with the sort of three main languages of Ethiopian Amharic Oromo Tigrinya it was a bit of Arabic as well and, and I can't understand anything so it's it's just reverberating off the walls yeah quite a sort of an intimidating hot environment there are lots of flies I, I woke up on, on the first morning having been bitten several hundred times by by fleas it was And obviously that cramped the space. You're physically sort of quite close to two people uh, on the floor. Um, But there there was this programme, essentially, that they did every every evening to sort of keep their spirits up, where they had the sort of unofficial room MC introduce that evening's programme. And it was basically that you had to... um, do a dance or tell a joke or sing a song and if you didn't the whole room would elect your punishment they would just sort of oh, say right you've got to do um, impersonations of a, a dog or a, a cat or something which they found hilarious um, and so there, there were just these amazing tribal performances really from from all over ethiopia which was sort of quite a privilege to witness There were these two or three Oromo lads who did this sort of feet-shuffling dance that sort of gathered momentum throughout it. They, they started dancing quite slowly, and then they started taking props from around the cell. Um, so one of them grabbed a, a broom and pretended it was a spear, and he sort of started jumping up and, and thrusting it at some imaginary beast, and... Um, like, gritted teeth, it was, it was really, really visceral um, that was I think probably my favourite one and then amazing songs as well there was an unwritten rule that as the newcomer you basically had to perform a la Fight Club, I mean it was like you, you didn't have a choice you, you were getting up <laughs> well yeah, the ones that didn't do anything basically had to impersonate animals of the room's choosing <laughs> so yeah on on the first night I had to do something there were a couple of performances before me so I I understood what my responsibility was and I, I didn't want to, to shy away from it as well, I, I, I felt I guess I felt that there, were, there was so much of Ethiopian culture that I was being shown to, um, that I thought it would be fun to (laughs) share mine, I guess. it was just an opportunity just to, um, I don't know, let them experience something that they'd not before. (laughs) Um, Well, I didn't come prepared. Um, It goes something like this. I owe my soul to the company store store. I was born one morning when the sun didn't shine I picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded sixteen tons of number nine coal And the straw boss said Well, bless my soul, you load sixteen tons What do you get? Another day older and Saint Peter, don't you call me, cause I can go. I owe my soul to the company store. I sung a song called 16 Tons by Tennessee Uh, Ernie Ford. uh, And and there was this lovely gesture that one of the audience made. I mean, this is in the pitch black, right? Because there there are no lights in the cell. So you're just in the dark singing to this room of (laughs) 50 Ethiopians. Um. And there's this wonderful thing in Ethiopian society where if you're at a club and an individual or or a pair get on the the dance floor and they elevate the energy of the room. You know how you sort of turn around at a club sometime and suddenly the dance floor's full. And that's because of one person. You probably saw who it was. They actually acknowledge that person by going and putting a hundred burr note, it's about five dollars they'll lick the note and whilst the guy's still dancing they go and press it on their forehead and someone did this to me in the the middle of my song (laughs) which was kind of touching To the company store. I was taken to um, a court hearing the, the next day, handcuffed to a um, another inmate, and sort of paraded out of the cell and into the back of a small van, and then taken to the court. The guy I was handcuffed to had. Uh, very fashionable tattoo which bridged his eyebrows, sort of connected them with this little fake eyebrow, and I think he, he might have had a, like a two-pack tattoo as well or something like that. Just bit of a bit of a thug, and we were taken to the the court, and the hearing was conducted completely in Amharic, so I had absolutely zero penetration on, on what the outcome of that was. Um, Alvin, the other climber. And his father and their lawyer came so that they could help me through that process. Uh, I should mention that the consulate never got back to me. And I'd left a, a second message before I went in saying, you know, I'm I'm going to prison now. Come come say hi. Yeah, they were less than useless. They've got a lovely nine-hole golf course in the compound there. But, yeah, they they didn't find the time, which was pretty disappointing, uh, to say the least. And, and, yeah, an incredibly isolating feeling like that you you have sort of professional representatives in that country whose job it is to to do that, and and they weren't there to support you. There was another hearing the next day as well, so sort of one night turned into two nights, and another hearing. And uh, the process for bringing me food was quite entertaining as well. I had a couple of friends on the outside who brought food to a little visitors' window, and they have to taste it in front of the guard to prove that it wasn't poisoned and then they could hand it over and so I sort of begun you know leading this life where people would bring me food and cigarettes I'm not a smoker but that was a, an indulgence for sure in, in prison and, and a currency as well and books and, and I just had these long idle days doing nothing and not not knowing what the process for getting out was going to be The first couple of nights, I, I was always the the last to fall asleep. Um, I guess just pent up on uh, fear, adrenaline. I, I don't know, just sort of trying to get a sense for what my personal security was in in that situation. The process eventually. Got a little bit clearer on Alvin's side, and he he just had to prove that they could provide bail at some case in the future, if a charge was ever brought against me. And so I think they had this old Peugeot five hundred four or something in, the, in their driveway that hadn't moved since the nineties, and that was the collateral by which I was I was released. And so I got out, and this is after a week in prison, and you know left my fingerprints and then was let go and went to the hospital to pay the the final bill on this girl's surgery. And the operation was a, a success and she was walking out on crutches. I'd been encouraged by Alvin's father to draft a letter with a local lawyer that would exonerate me from further liability just to draw a clean line under it. So I, I drafted this letter with, with the lawyer, took it to the to the family and said, these are the terms, I think this is fair, sign it, I'm terribly sorry about this. And they said, there's been a big mistake, you've not made any allowance for travel from our hometown of Adowa." And I said, right, really, that's, what, $15, I'll pay you that in cash now, just sign the letter. Um, and they said, no, we're going to go and discuss it with our family, meet us back here tomorrow. I probably should have seen that as as a a big red flag and made some other decisions at at that point, but I agreed to meeting them again. Went back the next morning and there were four or five new members of the family that I'd never met, all wearing hobnail boots and looking pretty tough and demanding a rather large cash settlement on top of all of the medical fees I'd paid. I remember being with Alvin at that time so he was sort of translating this to the family and I just dropped a couple of red herrings that you know I was looking for a job which was true and that I would speak to my family and see if they could contribute towards it and that I just needed a couple of days break you know I just got out of jail and just wanted to you know put some, some clear air between me and that and that I'd, I'd be in touch with them next week then I did what I think any sensible person in there, Rhyme would be, and made arrangements to leave. And the getaway vehicle of choice was the late 1930s single cylinder villa set. Rode out of Addis and headed south. I remember being very close on my, my visa as well to its expiry date, and I'd consciously decided to not renew it because I, I didn't have any sort of control over how long that would take, and it was a, a sort of extra bit of the process that I didn't need to do. And so the clock ticking on that. I don't know who is following me, who's being, being paid to follow me from the family. The cost of labour is, is very cheap, so you, like, someone could pay someone you know, a dollar and they'd just follow me for a week. And so I, I, I was just deeply paranoid that you know, there might be someone waiting for me at the border when I got there. I knew that Addis had my, my prints. So there was just all of these, these things running around my head, like, am I going to be allowed to leave? Um, and that, that sort of just builds up over two days of travelling quite slowly, praying that nothing's going to go drastically wrong with, with the bike that I'll have to then fix for a few hours. I get to within about 100 kilometers of the border, and I was on this tiny little yellow dirt track and hit a pothole, and it snapped a bit of the forks on the bike irreparably, just completely buggered. And I didn't have any spares to replace that. <laughs> and my heart sank at that moment. I was like, I, I was so close, I was so close, and, and I just felt that that gold just evaporating and the thought of being sort of locked up in some provincial jail just grew in my mind I'd taken two hundred dollar bills as my my sort of get to the border money and the first one of these I give to the next truck that passes like an hour later and I said take me to the border and it was a, a rice truck and I remember there were We needed probably about 15 people to lift the bike up onto the back of this rice truck. Got the bike on there. I went into the cab and just fell asleep and woke up on the border two hours later. The Border had closed because it was just after dark. Woke up the next morning and there's Kenya, sort of 100 metres away. I've got the Kenyan visa in my passport. I've just got a clear... Immigrations for me and customs for the bike. And then I'm, I'm home free. I go to the Immigrations office and they open it for me. There's nobody else at the border that morning. And the first border that I've crossed with an automatic fingerprint scanner in my life was that one. And there's this pause when I'd scanned my fingerprints. And the immigration officer turns to his colleague with sort of like quite wide eyes, and he, and he says something. I just assume he's asking for handcuffs or something, that there's, there's a big red flashing screen in front of him. His colleague hands him a rubber stamp <laughs> and, and stamps me out of the country. And I just do this sort of little internal... Thing sigh of relief and then the same with with the bike clearing that through customs and then I push it over the border into Kenya and then celebrate then then allow myself to, to celebrate and text people back home and, and tell them that, that that everything's okay I'd been encouraged not to make any external communications I love my family dearly but um, I didn't think that there was anything that they could contribute to that situation and so it wasn't until I I was sort of clear of the country that I told them what i have been up to in the preceding weeks <laughs> what was my family's reaction they were obviously sort of very shocked and, and concerned that that I'd been exposed to that but I don't think that any of them realistically thought that there was anything that, that they could have done um, to help me yeah I think they were just incredibly happy that, that I was safe and knowing that I was a free man. (laughs) I don't know, I lost them.